0: Welcome to On The Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. Hi, I'm Andy Simon. As you know, I'm your host and your guide. And I've started to tell people on our podcast a little bit more about me, because they keep asking, who are you? So I'm a corporate anthropologist, and I've specialized for most of my career in helping organizations and the people inside them change. And you must recognize that people hate change. Your brains would just as soon i go away. But the podcast came about after my book, On the Brink, was published and won an award. And my second book just won an award as well, Three Think, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. And I'm honored to be able to share with you my insights into how people can change and particularly how corporate cultures must change. So today's guest is a very special woman. I can't wait to share her with you. Arohini Anand, I met through the Women Business Collaborative, where I'm a member and she is well. I read her new book. The book is called Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion A Guide for Systemic Change of Multinational Organizations. I can't tell, that's it. Yes, mine's on my iPad. I can't show it as easily. I'm so glad you had a copy. <laughs> I wouldn't you. Um, but Rohini has a wonderful perspective. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and then let her tell you about her own journey. But remember, our job is to help you see, feel, and think in some new ways. So you can do something. And the questions around diversity, equity, inclusion are profound. I cannot tell you how many CEOs have said to me, took me three months to hire some people to diversify my culture. They only lasted three months. And I said, okay, we have a bigger question here about what is your culture? And why should people belong to it? And humans want to belong. So here's Rohini's background. She's a strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, expert, highly sought after board member, a published author and esteemed speaker. She's recognized as a pioneer in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and has been on the forefront of leading business through lasting change for corporations, nonprofit organizations, and government agencies worldwide. She was previously Senior Vice President, Corporate Responsibility, and Global Chief Diversity Officer for Sodexo. And under her leadership, the Sodexo brand became synonymous with leadership in diversity, corporate responsibility, and wellness. And I have a hunch she's going to tell you a little bit about her journey. But I'm excited because both in her book and in her work, she's actually making things happen. And for all of you who are wondering, how do you make DE&I happen? You need to listen carefully because there's this it's happening. And now the question is, how can we share it so you can do it as well? Rohini, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you, Andy, and looking forward to the
0: conversation. Let's begin. Who is Rohini? What's been your journey? Share it with the listeners. They love the
1: stories. Yeah. So, Andy, you know, as you know, anyone involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, this work is very personal for them. And my story is integral to who I am. I actually grew up in Mumbai, India. And growing up in India, almost everyone sort of looked like me. It's a country with a lot of diversity. Many socioeconomic classes, religions, ethnicities, languages, etc. I belong to the majority religion, Hinduism, and surrounded by others like me, I had the privilege of not having to think about my identity. So I moved to the United States um, as a teenager. And uh, went to graduate school. And that really was my inflection point in my both literal and metaphorical journey. And I have to say that my identity shifted from being a person who saw herself as as a center of her world to being a foreigner, to being an immigrant, uh, to being a minority. And I was totally unprepared for that. So it was only when I was identified as a minority did I realize the privileges that came with being part of a majority. You know, I was a, I was part of the majority growing up in India, but I had not recognized my privilege in that way. And honestly, I was unable to until I was perceived as a minority and I experienced things differently. So the realization that identity is situational, is fluid, informed the research that I did for my PhD and still informs my work. So I would say that this vocation is very personal to me. Understanding what it means to be perceived as a minority, as an outsider, is very much at the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And my, I'm fortunate that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. So it's a little bit about my journey to the work that I do today. And, you know, I continue to do this work. You're right. I worked for Sodexo for 18 years. and um, I rewired from Sodexo in 2020, 2020, just before COVID hit, used the time to write my book. And since then, I've been doing book talks, strategic coaching and advising, and I'm on several boards, but I continue to do this work that's so meaningful to me because it is part of who I am. Well, being who you
0: are, when you were at Sodexo, I have a hunch you explored, created, learned a great deal about the challenges of building a diverse culture, particularly mm-hmm. a global one. Um, is that a good place for us to start to talk about the, uh, the learnings that went on there? Because it was very profound. You went from India. I've been to India. It's quite a complicated place. And, and coming here, discovering the culture had a different attitude, different values. And everything about you being here was different. And somehow you had to find a way of belonging, and humans want to belong. Some of the insights that came from the Sodexo experience would be really helpful, I think, to our listeners.
1: Yeah, so Andy, when I joined Sodexo, um, there was a fairly serious lawsuit. And I didn't quite realize, understand or really recognize the seriousness of that lawsuit until about six months after I was hired. When it was certified as a class action lawsuit and settled for over 80 million dollars, it was a lawsuit promotion discrimination lawsuit filed by African Americans in the company. And I share that because you know what I say in the book, and 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 the journey really was from class action to best in class. So that yeah. was the that was the sort of situation that I stepped into. But with the support of leadership, we were able to change the culture around and became known for our leadership in diversity equity and inclusion in the united states and then it was a question of scaling this work globally so what i found was that doing this global di work is very complex it's you know it's very dynamic it's very complex there's no checklist there's no playbook there's no i don't even think any best practices are adequate but there were these five principles that showed up each time when i did the work that are absolutely critical and they provide a through line um, and this the, the, each of the principles is simple it's a simple statement it's based on my experiences but also experiences of my colleagues who've done the you know heavy lifting in their organizations they're simple but they're disruptive and they don't provide any sort of standard, standards of plug-and-play templates based on what's worked in the U.S. because that's been a foundational mistake is to replicate what works in one part of the world in other parts of the world. So these principles can be applied with sensitivity to any culture and really empower global leaders to develop their own solutions, not to mimic any one experience, but really develop their own solutions. So the principles are, and this is what I think is absolutely foundational in doing this culture change work, because it is about transformation, it's about culture change. The first is is make it local, and global DI change has to be anchored in an understanding of the local context. It has to be rooted in the local particulars, informed by the history, the culture, the language, the laws of each place. You have to consider the power dynamics, identify those that are the subordinate uh, subordinate and dominant groups identify how identity is defined, how it's expressed, but it does not mean, so understanding doesn't mean accepting the status quo, because outside influence can be catalysts for change. They can raise the issues that those within a culture may not be able to see, like I was not able to see my own privilege, right, or um, because of power dynamics, but this works best when local change agents are empowered. So the you know, to, to partner with the outside influencers. So it can it's about pushing the status quo, disrupting and pushing for change, but doing it with an understanding of the local context. The second is what I call leaders change to lead change. And we know very well that you know uh commitment from senior leadership is absolutely fundamental to ensuring that. DEI is sustained. And when leaders embrace DEI with sort of authentic purpose and passion, the organization goes from performative action to sustainable progress. So leaders really need to internalize the benefit of DEI to themselves personally and to the organization. And that often requires a destruction of their worldview and the painful work of introspection. And, um, you know, this happens oftentimes, as you said, through stories, not necessarily data. But I think it's important as leaders do seek out these disruptive experiences that they take ownership of their own learning and are mindful of the toll that it takes for people with those lived experiences to share their experiences again and again and again. So it takes leaders who intentionally prioritize DEI as they would any other business imperative. So that's the second principle, leaders change to lead change. The third is, and it's good business too, and without a compelling reason for change, we all know, 70% of change efforts fail, but this reason, this sort of change narrative has to be congruent with the organization's purpose and how business is done. The third principle is go deep, wide, sorry, the fourth principle is go deep, wide, and inside out, and that really speaks to the fact that organizations are comprised of interconnected systems that work in concert with each other. And DEI needs to be infused in the internal processes and systems and externally. So you have to take a systems approach. And then the last one, the fifth principle is know what matters and counter. And metrics clearly provide a global framework, a cohesive narrative. They spotlight problem areas and solutions. And um, they can be instruments for change. So you've got to have the right metrics and you've got to hold your teams accountable. So make it local. Leaders change, really change. And it's good business to go deep, wide, and inside out and know what matters and count it. The five principles that I think are absolutely critical to any change effort.
0: And now a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey. Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls, and become the best that they could be. They heard things like, women aren't lawyers, and women can't lead, and women aren't in geosciences, and they said, of course we are, and they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books, and you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves, very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now, back to our podcast. I love your principles. They are very much uh, congruent with culture change work that we do. Um, mm-hmm. but but you, there are some things I'd like to dig a little deeper into yeah. because the leader, changing the way they see diversity, and equity and inclusion are essential. They're they're the leader. The question is, how do you get them to change? Remember, we live the story in our minds. If we don't collaborate with our mind, um, our mind does exactly what it thinks you want it to do. And so the research on the mind is so compelling. Now the question is, how do we get leaders to change that story so Mm -hmm. that the diverse isn't um, the outsider, who you're bringing in, sort of gratuitously, the outsider is essential to the growth of the organization and how we now build a culture where we value that diversity as opposed to want to eliminate it or control it or put it into certain, I mean, the the thing that always worries me having been an executive in two banks is that you tend to bring in the diversity and put them into buckets where they belong and and there was sort of a, a stereotype of what kind of jobs they should hold and where those people should be and and that by itself wasn't diversity or equity or inclusion it was um, it was a different way of building uh, a mosaic which wasn't particularly good share with us I'm I, I'm particularly interested in how do I start with the leader because I think that's where we have to start
1: no no you're absolutely right we do have to start let me just share two quick stories so. You know, one story is about a particular leader who mentored a woman from, um, you know, who was part of the organization and she managed high security facilities. And after mentoring her, he came to me and he said, if you had presented me with two candidates, a male and a female, and asked me to hire the best qualified candidate for a high security facility, I would have chosen the man because... You need an aggressive, assertive leadership style. You need It's a dangerous environment. I would never have chosen the woman. But he says, after having mentored this woman who's extremely effective, she has a different leadership style and she's very effective. She gets the outcome. He says, I will never let that unconscious bias impact my talent decisions again. So I think that's the story of You know, basically providing leaders with disruptive experiences that help to shake their worldview, provide them a different perspective, expose them to people who are not necessarily like themselves, in this case, a woman with a different leadership style, so that they can actually do this work of introspection and emerge in a way that really shifts their, you know, their perspective, their thinking, their worldview. You know, we don't know what we don't know. So, this leader was able to kind of internalize that experience. The other story that I have is a leader who was, um, had, you know, listened to all these stories about the business case about diversity, equity, and inclusion, was not buying. You know, I had some specific data, but he was not necessarily convinced. Um, he got involved in a cross company mentoring program along with other CEOs. He wanted to network with other CEOs and this was networking on the topic of diversity. And he mentored a woman from a different organization, developed a trusting relationship with her. She got laid off and she had discussed and shared with him her lived experiences being marginalized, being discriminated against, being the only woman on the executive team. Um, And he listened with sort of this newfound interest And he came to me and he said, he said that, you know, I just cannot believe that women have these kinds of experiences in the workplace. She was the only woman in her executive team. And he said, this is unacceptable. I want all 12 of my direct reports to mentor a woman from a different part of the organization. So they did, you know, the the, the leader asked them and they did. And of the 12 women that were mentored slash sponsored, because it wasn't just mentoring, these were senior executives who actually sponsored these women, nine out of the 12 got senior positions either as country heads or heads of large pieces of business. Now, again, it took the lived experiences of this woman that he was, it came close to home. He had developed a relationship with her. It came close to home. He, she, he listened to her and it was her lived experiences that helped to shift his perspective. So I think storytelling and lived experiences can be very beneficial. But I will caution that it is very tiring for those that have experienced these lived experiences to share them again and again and again. And we have to really maximize the impact of those lived experiences but also leaders have to take responsibility for their own learning at the end of the day. So I think those are sort of two stories. I have one more. If you have time, I can share one.
0: Oh, I, I love you. See, I'm a storyteller. And I think that what you capture in the story are the words that you said that the leaders have to change their leadership. The question is, OK, how do I do that? And the experiential learning is where we learn best. You Absolutely. can't learn from a book and you can't learn from listening to me what is it you really mean? How does that really feel? Another story.
1: Yeah. So this story is actually a CEO, um, previous CEO at Sodexo. And, you know, globally, as you know, most companies focus on gender just because race, ethnicity translates very differently in different parts of the world. doesn't translate in many parts of the world. Um, And this was a French man in France the word race was actually struck from the French constitution in 2018 for historical reasons. So he sort of, when we started talking about ethnicity and race, he said to me, he said, why are you diluting the focus on gender by bringing in all these other strands of diversity? Because it doesn't, race doesn't translate in France. It doesn't translate in many parts of Europe. And he was right and didn't. So I realized that I needed to expand his worldview Um, And to do that, I invited him to uh, an employee resource group meeting by the African-American employee resource group in, um, in the United States. He attended that meeting, one of maybe two French men who were at that meeting, one of the only white men at the meeting. He listened to the lived experiences, particularly of the black men, black leaders in that meeting. And it was very moving because now he knew these people. Again, these stories came close to home. You know, he listens to the experiences outside and within the organization. So that listening to the lived experiences combined with his experience of being a minority was very disruptive for him. Yeah. And he went on after the murder of George Floyd to send this really heartfelt message to the organization, something he wouldn't have done under normal circumstances. and. In succession planning meetings and talent review discussions, yes, you cannot gather data about people's race and ethnicity in Europe, but nothing, no one stops you from asking the questions. So when individuals would say, Well, we have diversity, we have Belgians and we have folks from the Netherlands and from Switzerland and Austria and Germany, you know, the question would be, That's wonderful. And how many of them are Black people? Yes. So he was able to ask those questions. That was, again, it was a very disruptive experience for him. And what's wonderful is many of these leaders have gone on to other organizations and have taken this this passion, this connection, this learning that they've had and become allies and sort of started to bring about that culture change in the other organizations that they've been to. So,
0: you know, you're... um... Uh, I'm alluding to something very important. Two things, um, and I want to talk about them. But but people are um, copycats, and they need to see others. You can call them role models. But unless somebody who they can admire is doing something differently, um, they would just assume move away from it, hijack it, and and not be the the solo solitary yeah. leader there. So yeah. building that base is important. Please.
1: Yeah, if I can just add to that, you're absolutely right, Andy. And when we talk about this notion of belonging, we often say, you know, it's an employee's sense of belonging to the culture, to an organization. But there's another dimension of belonging. And that dimension of belonging is the need for a leader, or an organization to belong to an elite leader, an elite group of companies that are committed to DEI. Yes. So I want to identify with other companies that are seen as, you know, diversity elite companies. I want to be part of that. Yes. There's this desire to belong as (laughs) to other organizations that are seen as having credibility. And they feed off each
0: other. Exactly. Because we are, I mean, the contagion is a healthy one because if I'm doing it and they're doing it somehow together, the the whole ship rises. But if I'm doing it alone, that's a long road to hope all by myself, solitary, it's very challenging. The other side of what you were talking about, though, I experienced as a woman. Um, And I'm not a woman of color, although I have a niece who's biracial. And we talk all the time about the challenges of being different. Mm -hmm. And I was executive in a bank and I'd go to a board meeting and there were 49 men, a nun and me. I didn't say anything. Um, and for many years, I was the sole woman on any executive team. And the challenge for a woman in that story is how to navigate what role to play. We're role players. I often think of life as theater. And, and I remember changing the conversations I would have, learning new ways of behaving, how to dress, where to, how to perform, particularly when you were in a room of mostly men and you are not exactly being asked anything to contribute. Uh, but you were there. And and I can't tell you how many times I was the only or among the few. And I do think it's changing. And I'm glad of that. I can date myself. Um, but the other thing is, how do you advise or counsel those who are now being brought in to diversify? The gentleman I mentioned who spent three months recruiting a woman of color to join his organization, and she only stayed three months, was he was angry at her for not belonging and, and I said to him why is it her problem and not a combination it's not your problem or her problem you brought her into a place that wasn't welcoming where there was nobody who looked like her sandal like, how how are you going to change this and what is the role of the person being anointed with this diversity um, manner to have to come in and do something for you some some advice or
1: experiences stories to share In terms of being the only and, you know, I think a woman of color is a double only, which is the other piece. Right. As a woman and as a woman of color. Um, And I think you're right. I think very often, you know, when you are the only, it's difficult to speak up. I do think that it's, you know, what helps a lot is if you can get allies and male allies, um, you know, within the room. So having the conversations outside to find out who can be your ally. Who can amplify your voice? You know, who can say when you're talked over that? I think that Rohini just shared it a great example. Who can say that? You know, we haven't heard from Rohini yet. Perhaps we should, you know, hear yes. what she has to contribute. That those kinds of allies, I think, are really important. You know, it's sort of a double-edged sword because, in a sense. Uh, And usually, the allies are the ones who have the power, the ones with the dominant group are white males. So, in a sense, we're asking white males to validate us as women or women. So, that's sort of (laughs) one. Forgive me for laughing, but you're you're right. (laughs) And the the other side of it is, in some senses, you're using their power to upend their power. So, there's there's two sort of sides to this. And I think it has to be used strategically so that, you know. But I I think allies is one piece. I think the other piece, the other piece of advice that I would give is, you know, just be true to who you are. You have to be authentic. I think imitating someone else's leadership style or a male style does not work because it does you disservice and it's just, you know, so I think being authentic is absolutely critical. And I think the third piece is, you know, before you join an organization, do your research because. An organization that is not welcoming of someone who looks like you doesn't deserve you. So do your research and, you know, walk away. There are other options that you have, particularly today with, you know, the talent shortages. So I think that, uh, you know, organizations will have to change in order to, you know, provide a welcoming environment. I mean, I have millennial daughters and, you know, I know numerous times and they've walked away from from organizations because they didn't see someone like themselves and they didn't think that it was a female friendly organization. So I think. Uh, yep.
0: Well, I, I, I as I'm listening to you, it's not a bad time to think about wrapping up because you and I could talk for a long time about this. And I know you can with great uh, expertise. Uh, I think that the times they are changing. And, and I'd like our listeners, I don't know, to walk away from um, Rohini's talk with two or three things that you think they should focus on. You have your principles. I like them. I love the fact that we're talking about how to make them actionable. Principles are principles, but what do you actually do if you oh, do it local? Um, but what would be the top two or three things that they should remember? Because I want them to do something when they leave.
1: So I think the one piece is that change really happens at the intersection of people and processes. Yes. And you have to impact both. So I would encourage on, on the personal level to see how you can be an ally for others, you know, regardless of who they are um, in the organization. And then I would say, you know, look to how you can dismantle those processes that have, you know, uh, that are tenacious but have advantaged some and have created disadvantages for others. So work both at the people and the process piece. And then I think this, you know, power of storytelling is amazing, um, even in terms of, of bringing along allies. I think it's really important. But I think use that stories with discretion because of the toll it takes on those that have lived experiences. But you know, work at the intersection of people and processes would be my one big takeaway.
0: And where can they find both you and your book, if they'd yeah. like to reach you?
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. So my website is www.rohinianan.com. And my book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, is available on Amazon and all of the other major outlets, as well as on, you can order it through my website.
0: It's a great book. It's great to read it. I want to add one last thought to our listeners. If you don't know Judith Glazer's work on conversational intelligence, go take a look at it. Uh, Judith was an observational, um, an organizational anthropologist who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, But she, doing the neuroscience work, uh, said something very profound. If you say I, the brain gets full of cortisol and flies away from it. It becomes a battleground. It's a threat if you say we the oxytocin the bonding hormones go really make love there so as you're thinking about this diversity equity inclusion is about we and if you start talking about what we can do together it's a much healthier environment for us to actually do it the bonding that happens is as is natural for the brain and so don't underestimate the power of the body to respond to the way you're talking and the conversations that we're having today are around how do we build a better world where people are part of a larger organization that can all together rise and do better together because they care about each other. And I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to have you here today. Thank you, Rohini. Thank you, Andy. This is wonderful. So, I'll wrap up for my listeners and my viewers. My audience is terrific. You've put us in the top 5% of podcasts globally. Thank you so much. And you send me great people to interview, which I just enjoy tremendously. And my job is to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. To do something that you hate to do, embrace change. These are changing times. Please open up and try and do it with great joy. Bye-bye now. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.